The scripture reading today is from the letter of Paul to the Romans, chapter 12, verses 3 through 8. Hear the word of the Lord. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and not all the members have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ, and individually we are members one of another. We have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Prophecy in proportion to faith. Ministry in ministering. The teacher in teaching. The exhorter in exhortation. The giver in generosity. The leader in diligence. The compassionate in cheerfulness. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In our sermons during the winter and spring, we're looking at what is without a doubt the most significant letter in the history of Christianity. Paul's letter to the Romans has generated conversations, doctrines, disputations, even a few reformations. And it has done so universally throughout the Christian tradition. It was a few verses from Romans that stirred St. Augustine, before he was a saint, to pick up a Bible after he had heard a voice in the garden telling him, pick it up, read it. It was reading Romans that led to Augustine's conversion to Christianity in the fourth century. Both Roman Catholics and Protestants look to St. Augustine as their foundational theological thinker. Fast forward some 12 centuries to a monk of the Augustinian, that's Augustine, Augustinian order in Wittenberg, Germany, named Martin Luther. Luther had had his theological furniture rearranged after reading Paul's letter to the Romans, and it led him to write in the preface of his commentary on Romans, that Paul's letter was the chief part of the New Testament, the purest gospel. It was Paul's way of talking about righteousness, right relatedness to God, that Luther said caused me to feel reborn. Two centuries later, an Anglican priest who had well, he'd failed as a missionary to the New World. His name was John Wesley, and he was attending a midweek service in a church on Aldersgate Street in Oxford, England. And as he put it, his heart was strangely warmed after, a, after hearing a reading from, wait for it, Martin Luther's preface to the commentary on Romans. Wesley went on to lead a movement that resulted in one of the largest Protestant traditions in the world, Methodist, Methodism. At the beginning of the 20th century, a Swiss theologian by the name of Karl Barth started a theological revival by writing a commentary on 
the book of Romans. One German theologian famously said that Barth's commentary on Romans fell like a bombshell on the playground of the liberal theologians. So whether you're a Catholic who looks to Augustine, a Lutheran or a Reformed Christian who looks to Luther, a Methodist or member of the Free Church or the Holiness Denomination who looks to John Wesley, or a modern Christian who looks to Karl Barth, the biblical book that shaped them and at least indirectly shapes your and our faith is Paul's letter to the Romans. Let us pray. Gracious God, for the gift of Scripture and for the gift of Paul's faithful exposition of the gift of grace in Jesus Christ, in this book we call Romans, we give you thanks. We pray that you would make our ears attuned and our hearts ready to hear and to follow your will. For Jesus' sake, amen. In last week's sermons, Dr. Rennick looked at the first two verses of Romans chapter 12, which marks this all-important pivot point in the book as Paul begins to consider the practical aspects of living the Christian life. The theme of Romans, which Paul develops in the first 11 chapters, is stated early on in the book. The one who is righteous by faith shall live. That is, the one whose relationship to God is made right by faith in Jesus Christ. God has sent his son to restore us to right relatedness. That's what righteousness means. Right relatedness, relatedness to God. This is something we could never do on our own. Not by our ability or power. And so when Paul begins in Romans chapter 12 by saying that he is appealing to the readers by the mercies of God, he's referring to all that has been accomplished by Jesus Christ to reconcile us to our Heavenly Father, which Paul has systematically developed in the first 11 chapters. And based on these mercies, as Paul calls them, he tells the Christians in Rome that we are to honor God by living transformed lives that are conformed to God's will by the renewing of the mind. Beginning in, chapter, in verse 3 of today's passage, Paul begins to describe what it looks like to live such a transformed life, one that is conformed to God's will. It begins with right thinking. In verse 3, and it's in, the, it's in your bulletin, Paul uses the word think four times. Do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought to think, but to think literally in Greek, with a sober, modest judgment or sober thinking. <laughs> Don't think more highly than you ought to think, but think with modest thinking. At the heart of the life lived together in community is a fair and sober estimate of ourselves. Specifically, and this is the easy part, what Paul is calling us not to do, we are not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. In other words, don't get a big head. What Paul is instructing us to do is a bit trickier to follow, but I think we can say it boils down to the word modesty. Modesty. You remember what that word means. 
I just don't hear that word a lot these days, especially not in Washington. Paul wrote his letter to the Roman Christians while he was staying in Corinth. Before he'd ever been in Rome, he'd heard reports that there was disagreement among the believers there. Now, you might recall, if you read any of the New Testament, that Corinth is the city with the most seriously divided church that Paul has ever encountered. And when Paul had written his first letter, that is what we call 1 Corinthians, the main problem that he addressed was the division among believers there. In Corinth, some thought themselves better, superior, to everyone else because they possessed certain kinds of spiritual gifts. Now, the divisions in the Church of Rome seem to be centered around a different issue, differences between Jewish and Gentile Christians. Jewish Christians initially thought themselves superior to Gentile believers. After all, Jesus was a Jew. They had taken probably what they had heard, the message at Pentecost, back to Rome and had begun house churches. Most of the house churches in Rome met in Jewish homes, and they would have felt culturally Jewish, especially when Gentile believers began to join. They were a minority to begin with. Christianity was viewed by Roman outsiders, by the Roman authorities, as some kind of a subset of Judaism. But in 49 AD, Emperor Claudius expelled all the Jews from the city. And that left only Gentile Christians. There was no Jewish leadership. Over a period of some seven years or more, every new convert, every new leader, every new house church that sprung up took on Gentile characteristics. The Gentile Christians became the majority. And then when the Jews were, Jewish Christians were allowed to return, they found a vastly different church. And the Roman authorities began to see Jews and Christians as different from each other, really for the first time, based on cultural characteristics. So by the time Paul wrote, there were still some Jews who saw themselves as superior because Jesus was a Jew and the origins of the Roman church were Jewish, but now the Gentiles were the majority group. And there were numerous new converts who knew nothing of the early Jewish culture and, and the cultural characteristics of the first house churches. Moreover, the Romans had a bias. Gentiles were better than Jews. So now the new majority Gentile Christians are feeling superior to the now minority Jewish believers. And so you've got two groups, each of them thinking that they are better than the other. Such ways of thinking are precisely what Paul is saying need to be renewed. So in verse 3 of our passage, Paul is quite specific too when he says, everyone among you. Don't think more highly of yourselves than you ought to think, but think with sober thinking. He doesn't leave anybody out. Paul calls every single one of the Roman believers to a new self-understanding based on the measure of faith that God has given 
by grace, not the basis of ethnicity or nationalistic identity or who got there first or how many more of them than there are than the other. God's grace in Christ is the foundation for living a life characterized by this word modesty. Then in verses 4 and 5, Paul goes on to say, such a renewed self-understanding can't take place in a vacuum of individualism. The self-understanding that comes from sober, modest self-evaluation comes through corporate membership in the body of Christ. Paul first used his analogy between the church and the human body when he had written to the church in Corinth. And now he writes from Corinth, and it seems to be fresh in his mind. In this morning's passage, Paul speaks simply of people in Christ making up a single body. But in 1 Corinthians 12 and in Ephesians 4, Paul speaks specifically of the church as the body of Christ. The metaphor of the body suggests not a pattern of uniformity and sameness, but one of unity of faith and diversity of gifts. The human body is not a unity despite its diversity, The human body is a unity because it has different parts. Arms, legs, fingers, torso, head. They're they're not the same. They're the body because they're not the same. For the Christians, self-understanding only comes through our interconnectedness with the many members of Christ's body. And what does this mean? It frees us from competing with each other and it makes us able to complement each other. As Christians, we're all members, well, of an orchestra, and we don't all play the same instrument, and none of us is a soloist. For me, as an individual Christian, if I'm going to properly understand who I am, I first need to know who we are. Faith has to be corporate in order for it to be individual. And then in verse 6, Paul turns from discussions of the body as a whole to the different parts. These parts differ, Paul says, according to the grace given us. Now here it's important to note a kind of a word play that Paul uses. The word for grace in Greek is charis. The word for gift is charisma or charisma. So we see that the source of a spiritual gift, charisma, is grace, charis. Further, the diversity of the gifts also is the result of grace. Grace gives us the diversity. We have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Paul's made this case earlier in Romans that grace saves and sanctifies sinners. In Ephesians 4, Paul gives a list of spiritual gifts and he says quite specifically that these grace gifts equip the body of Christ for the work of ministry, for building up the body. The gifts Paul mentions here in Romans 12 as well as in 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4, are representative of the vast diversity of gifts that God gives. So they're not a comprehensive list, but they're representatives. 
God has all kinds of gifts for the church that he gives to the individual members who are part of the body of Christ. Some gifts appear to just be, just be their natural talents, strengthened by the Holy Spirit. Others are unique abilities that follow conversion and are empowered only by the work of the Holy Spirit. But all of these are gifts nonetheless. They're spiritual endowments for ministry within Christ's body. The first gift that Paul mentions is prophecy. Paul spends an entire chapter on prophecy in 1 Corinthians 14. He regards it as a key gift because of its close relationship to the Word of God. Now, for many, prophecy brings to mind the prediction of future events. Now, as excited as people get about the prediction of the future, from a biblical perspective, prediction is not the heart of prophecy. In Scripture, prophecy is always a speaking forth of the very Word of God, regardless of whether any prediction of the future is involved. To say it another way, the distinguishing element of biblical prophecy is that it is simply a revelation from God. The second gift, serving, is in Greek the word from which a familiar Presbyterian office is derived. It's deacon. The, li the word literally in Greek means a, somebody who waits on tables. <laughs> Now, it's interesting that this gift of waiting on tables is second in Paul's list. It's ahead of the prestigious gift of teaching. And Paul was a great teacher. Jesus was a great teacher. Now, why? Well, I think it's due to the fact that Jesus, who we know was called teacher, and whose teaching amazed his listeners, but Jesus even more exalted service. Remember the part in Mark's gospel where Jesus uh, says that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, that same word, waiting tables, right there, and to give his life as a ransom for many, which was the greatest service of all. Greater love hath no one than they lay down their life for a friend. Mark's gospel tells us that Jesus said that now, from the beginning, Jesus sent an example of humility. And in writing to the church in Philippi, Paul exhorted the Christians there to follow Christ's example by considering others better than ourselves. And so, the gospel, right here, just in these two gifts, we can see that there is this indivisible unity between word and deed, between faith and life. A unity that finds its expression in these first two gifts, prophecy and serving. Paul next tells us that teaching is a spiritual gift that God gives to the church in certain individuals. Whereas the prophet interprets the gospel according to inspiration and direction of the Holy Spirit in a certain concrete circumstance where that word is necessary to be heard and thus is given, the teacher, by contrast, interprets the gospel through his or her reflection on knowledge of God's revelation in the Bible. Paul recognizes the importance of both prophecy and teaching, even as he 
holds prophecy more highly. And this needs to be remembered. As one biblical commentary uh, helpfully summarizes, teaching preserves continuity with the past, but prophecy gives life. With teaching, a community will not die, but without prophecy, it will not live. The next gift on Paul's list is encouraging or exhortation. The word Paul uses literally depicts someone who is called alongside another as a helping companion. This word is picked up in the Gospel of John, which was written many years later. And it's the same word that John uses to describe, uh, or that Jesus uses to describe the Holy Spirit. And it picks up on the image of the helper, the encourager. Jesus said, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, another comforter, another advocate, another exhorter, to be with you forever. That's how Jesus, in John's Gospel, described the gift of the Holy Spirit. The one who exhorts and encourages does nothing less than the work of the Holy Spirit. The section concludes with a series of virtues rather than specific offices or roles. The gift of giving is to be practiced generously. By this, Paul means the spirit of giving rather than the thing given. The Greek word carries the idea of freedom, of single-mindedness. The giver gives simply, without second thoughts, without ulterior motives or divided allegiances. It doesn't have to be a huge, substantial gift. It's the spirit in which it's given. Likewise, leaders are given the gift of governing diligently. The word implies a sense of haste or urgent, intense effort of giving it your all. If you're a leader, you get to work, you do it with everything you've got without delay. Finally, there's the gift of compassion. It's literally performing acts of mercy. This is the kind of person, the person with this gift, for whom I have the greatest respect. These are the ones who care for the sick, who tend to the dying. These are people who work with those who are incarcerated. The down and out, the lowest of the low. This spiritual gift makes it possible to minister in these situations cheerfully. Cheerfully in such challenging situations. And the reason I, find, I respect this so much is I, I just see that people who have this gift, what they do day in and day out, I, can't, I could not do that. I, I, I freely admit it. I, that, is, that is clearly not my gift. But I thank God that it is a gift that God gives to the body of Christ and that's there. In the late 1980s, Nancy and I made three trips to the former German Democratic Republic. This was before the Berlin Wall was taken down, and we went there to visit East German Christians simply to, well, in Paul's word, to encourage them and to learn from them. 
And each of these visits involved conversations with people working in the medical fields. It was interesting. Lots of Christians in the medical fields, physicians, nurses, and more. Now, under the communist regime, the hospitals were state-run. But there were certain, uh, special church-run, what they called diaconal houses or diaconal institutions, from this word deacon, that took care of the most challenging kinds of patients, those who were severely disabled, both mentally and physically, frequently both. They ranged from infants to pensioners but these were people who are never going to get better and who are never going to go home, even if they're one or two years old. On one of these visits, when I went to an actual house and saw the work that was being done, I was overwhelmed with the patience and the compassion of these Christian caregivers who worked with just a room full of young children who were so severely underdeveloped mentally, and some physically. I later was told that state officials in charge of hiring and staffing hospitals would have conversations with those in the church about their approach to training those who were in the caring ministries, like the diaconal ministries that I visited that day. And the, the, the state officials said there's a marked difference between the caregivers that we train in our state schools and that we get in our hospitals and institutions, and those who are trained in your church-run diaconal ministries institutions. How are you able to get caregivers who care like that? We simply can't train our people to do that, the state officials said. Well, it's almost as simple as this. These were Christian workers, and they had the spiritual gift of compassion. That enabled them to give in a completely different way, to be cheerful in their caring. The church, the body of Christ, is comprised of people who bear the distinct identity of God's grace. We receive God's gracious gift of salvation through faith in Christ, and because of his great mercy, we are called to live differently enabled by renewed minds to think rightly about our identity, to live transformed lives as members of the body of Christ, con contributing the diverse gifts that God wants to give to the body through us. Five of the seven gifts Paul mentions here are not listed in 1 Corinthians 12. Ministry or service, exhortation, giving, Leading, and compassion or mercy, there's still only five. <laughs> Paul seems to want to highlight these, which are more interpersonal than prophecy and teaching, suggesting the intimate interconnectedness that Paul's metaphor of the body evokes. And he wants to impress this on a divided church in Rome that's filled with people who thought more highly of themselves than they ought to. Whatever gift or gifts we have, Paul wants us to exercise these gifts appropriately and responsibly. Working together as a single body in unity and service to God in the church, 
because they're God's gifts. Think about this. The spiritual gifts that each of us have, that you have, that I have, it's a gift of God. Not so much to me or to you. It's a gift that God wants to give the church. So God has entrusted us with them, but the gifts ultimately don't belong to us. They belong to the church. And if we don't share them with the church, then we're not doing what God has asked us to do. God's entrusted them with us. But the gifts ultimately are the possessions of the church. They're not our possessions. They're not a sign of status. They're certainly not talents to be buried in the ground, as Jesus talked about in the parable. They belong to the body of Christ. It's our role as members of the body to contribute. Yesterday on my street, there were two celebrations of an important rite of passage for 13-year-olds. And there were at least a dozen families involved. They were all outside and socially distanced, which is how I knew that these parties were going on. And each guest came with a gift. But these gifts that the guests brought, really, they didn't belong to them. I mean, they had them, but they weren't their gifts. They belonged to the recipient. And so it is with the gifts of the Spirit. Whatever spiritual gift God has endowed you or me with, we're called to use it for the mutual benefit of God's people, not thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, but with sober, modest judgment, according to the measure of faith that God has assigned to us. Let us pray. Gracious God, thank you for your gracious gift the gift of Jesus Christ, but the gifts that you give to the church through each of us. May we faithfully live out our calling and use our gifts in a unified way, these diverse gifts, to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.